grab your Bible with me and turn to Romans chapter 7. As a teenager growing up in Tennessee, it was a big deal to have what we called a four-wheeler. Maybe you call it an ATV. It's one of those off-road vehicles. Anybody like to go riding four-wheelers? Any? couple of you, a couple of you, yeah, and I always wanted one growing up, but my family, we could never afford it, and looking back, I think that's probably God's grace, uh, because I am certain I would have injured myself on one of those things, but a lot of my friends had four-wheelers, some of them had a few, so sometimes I'd get to go out riding with them, and the best place to ride a four-wheeler is off-road in the mud, I mean, those things are built to get messy. I'll never forget on one occasion in particular, a friend and myself, we went down by the river, found some trails to ride. We were having a blast, man. We were going up hills and jumping over ditches and driving through puddles and slinging mud everywhere. Everything was going great until we came around one particular turn in the trail. And right before our eyes was the king of all mud puddles. It was huge. It was filled with mud and water. It was more accurately described as what we would call a mud hole. Now, I'm pretty risk averse. I don't like to to roll the dice in that way. So I drove around it, but my friend was not following me. I turned around to check on him, and I noticed he had that look in his eyes that teenage boys get where he thought, I can do this. So he backed his four-wheeler up to get off to a good running start, and he takes off. I mean, he's fast, he's flying, and he hits that mud hole, and things start off well. He's moving fast enough to kind of skim over the top of the water. Mud's flying everywhere. But as he got into the heart of the hole, he began to slow down. And as he began to slow down, he began to sink. And let me tell you, that mud hole was a lot deeper than we thought. Pretty soon, he was standing on top of his seat with the rest of his four-wheeler completely submerged in mud. And we tried to grab and pull what we could, but it wouldn't budge. So we hooked it up to my front of my four-wheeler and tried to back it out, and it wouldn't budge. So eventually, we had to make that dreaded call to the parents and confess our sins, and someone came and pulled us out. You know, our battle with sin is a lot like that. <laughs> We're all sinners, We all like to sin. And, you know, a lot of times we get away with it. We manage it. We hide it. We explain it away. But eventually we get stuck. We get buried in our sin. So what do we do? We try to pull ourselves out. We promise, okay, I'll do better next time. I'm never going to do that again. We try harder and we gather up all our willpower and we try to obey our way out of sin. But I'm willing to bet this morning that you found out like I have That doesn't work too well, does it? We simply cannot obey our way out of sin. No matter how much we focus and try and do all the right things, we cannot pull ourselves out of the mud hole. We need the help of someone else. And that experience, that that struggle that we feel is one that is common to the Christian life. In fact, it's so common that even one of the most famous Christians to ever live, the Apostle Paul, dealt with that same struggle. And in today's passage, he's going to give us a behind-the-scenes look at his own battle with sin. And he's going to give us two reasons that we cannot obey our way out of sin. Here's the first reason. Number one, we cannot obey our way out of sin because the law is good. Uh, Let's walk through our text this morning verse by verse. And I want to show you this point for ourselves. You know, I'm not making this up. Look at Romans chapter 7, start with verse 7. He says, Do you not know, brothers... For I am speaking to those who know the law, 
Oh, I messed up. That's, that's verse 1. Verse 7, chapter 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. So here we go again with the question, the emphatic by no means. Paul, we know, loves to ask those questions. And this time the question is, is the law sin? First off, we need to remember what we learned last week. We, when Paul uses the word law, he's talking about the Mosaic law. That's the list of rules and regulations that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai to give to the Israelites. Those laws were summed up in the Ten Commandments, which we all know. And the Jewish people, they looked at the law as a means to salvation. They thought if they could just obey the law enough, then they would gain a right standing with God. But as Paul's shown us in this letter, that is not the case. The laws, the rules, they can't save us. We can't be good enough for our salvation. In fact, the law actually makes us worse because then we know what's right and wrong and we still choose to do wrong. So then here comes the logical question. Well, Paul, are you saying the law is bad? Is it sin? I mean, these Ten Commandments, they came from God. I thought they were good. What are you saying, man? And Paul rejects that. He says, no way. The law is not sin. The law is actually good. Look at the rest of verse 7. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law is good. Because it reveals to us who God is and how he desires for us to live. Paul uses the example here of coveting. To, to covet is to desire something that does not belong to you. And the law says that that desire is wrong. But why? Why is it wrong? Because God said so? No, the law is not just some kind of arbitrary made-up list by God. He didn't just sit down one day and say, oh, you know what? I think I'll make coveting bad. No, the law is a reflection of God's character. God is a God who is true, so lying is wrong. God is a God who is faithful, so adultery is wrong. And God wants us to obey the law because it actually protects us. It's for our good. They're like guardrails for our lives. See, when we lie, when we commit adultery, when we steal, when we covet, these things harm us. They lead to chaos in society and the world. We're seeing that right now, aren't we? So the law is a good thing. But here's what happened. Let's keep going. Romans 7, verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Here's the problem. It's not the law. It's sin. It's us. Because we're sinners, when we hear the rules, we want to break them. It's like when my mom told me as a kid to not touch the hot stove. Suddenly my hand had like a gravitational pull towards the eye of the stove. And guess what I did? I touched it. <laughs> and I burned myself. Anybody else do that? Sin is so messed up that it actually causes us to want to break the very rules we know we're supposed to follow. So the law doesn't make us better. It actually makes us worse. We're sinners. Sin is the problem. Let's keep going. Verses 9 through 12. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Paul now looks back at his life to try and explain how we get into this mess with sin. He says once he was apart, alive apart from the law, what does that mean? 
Well, it doesn't mean there's a time when we're not sinners. We're born sinners. But there is a time in each of our lives where we aren't fully accountable for our sin. You may be familiar with the, the term we use to describe that. It's called the age of accountability. It's the reason we believe babies and young children are covered by God's grace and will spend eternity in heaven if they die. doesn't mean they're not sinners. It simply means they don't have the ability to understand their sin yet. They're not consciously rebelling against God, and so they will not be held accountable for their sin. But there is an age. There is a time when each of us become aware of God's demand on our lives, and we choose to rebel anyway. In that sense, sin becomes alive. We become accountable to God. Paul describes it as sin killing us. When we sin against God and we rebel against him, the result is spiritual death. We may look alive on the outside, but we're dead spiritually on the inside. We're cold-hearted towards God and his ways. There's this separation between God and us. We have a broken relationship. And that's what we describe as being lost. And all of us were there once. All of us were lost at one point in our lives. We knew the law, we broke the law, and we came under God's judgment. So was it the law's fault? No, it's our fault. Paul says the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. See, that's the first reason we cannot obey our way out of sin. The law is good, it's too good. It's described here as holy. That word holy means set apart, perfect, pure. It's the standard that we just can't reach on our own. Romans 3.23, it's why it says, for we all have sinned and fall short. We fall short. We don't measure up, and we never will. You know, I've always wanted to be able to dunk a basketball. I love basketball. I grew up playing it, but I was always really short. But when I finally hit a growth spurt in high school, I thought, okay, this is my chance. I'm going to do it. I'm going to dunk the ball. So I would run and jump, and one day I could touch the net. And then after a little while, one day I could touch the rim. But let me tell you, I was a long way from dunking the ball. No matter how hard I tried, how much strength and speed I put into my run and jump, I just couldn't do it. The goal was too high, and I was too unathletic. (laughs) And it's only gotten worse since that day. That's the picture of the law. Because the law is a reflection of God, because it's his perfect standard, it's too good, it's too holy, it's too high for us to reach. So if we think we could be good enough and try hard enough and do enough and God will be happy, we're just deceived. Look, we can write down the rules, we can build our checklist, we can memorize it, we can repeat it all day long, we can focus everything on it, but we cannot obey our way out of sin because the law is good. It's too good. That's the first reason this morning. Here's a second. Number two, we cannot obey our way out of sin because I am not good. (laughs) That's kind of the understatement of the year. (laughs) But it's really that simple. I have two younger twin sisters. Whenever they would show romantic interest in a young man, one of them's getting married this May, they'd always tell me they'd be describing him and talking all about him. And they'd say, Micah, I promise he's a good guy. And I'd tell them, there's no such thing. That's a good guy. (laughs) There are no good guys or good girls for that matter. There are only sinners, and that includes all of us. And that's the point. Paul is now going to make clear, and my sisters never liked it when I said that. (laughs) But look at verse 13. This is what he tells us. He says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin 
producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Got another question, and another by no means. The law is not the reason we sin and are spiritually dead. It's our fault. It's because of our sin. See, we take what is good and we disobey it, and it produces even more sin. We become sinful beyond measure. And this reminds us that sin is not just something bad that we do. It's not just like a bad choice or mistake, but sin is actually a direction. It's a bent. It's a disease that ravages our souls. It affects every part of us. And this is what Paul continues to explain. Look at verses 14 through 20 now. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I know that was a lot of do's and do not wants and what and whatever. But what he's saying is that he can't do it. And these are really famous verses. They're highly debated. The debate really centers around who Paul is talking about. Is he just talking about himself? Is he talking about someone else? Is he describing the experience of someone who's a Christian or someone who's lost? People struggle with the idea that Paul could be describing his own wrestling match with sin. I mean, Paul is Paul. He's one of the greatest Christians to ever live. He traveled around as a missionary to start churches. He wrote much of the New Testament. And he's talking about really struggling with sin. I mean, surely this was not Paul and his life. Or maybe he's describing his life before Jesus saved him. Well, despite those objections, most people, including me, hold the view that Paul is talking about his present Christian life in these verses. One reason I believe that is because I think it's just the plainest way to read it. Paul says the word I. He speaks in the present tense. It seems as though Paul's talking about himself here. But there's another big reason I believe this. Paul's talking about his present Christian life. It's because I've lived it. What about you and your Christian journey? Do you relate to this passage at all and what Paul's saying? I know I do. I've experienced this in my fight with sin, and from best I can tell, I know a lot of other Christians who feel this way too. I, like, sometimes it feels like I have two versions of myself, like I'm living a double life. There's a part of me that knows what's right and wants to do it. Like I want to read my Bible and pray and memorize Scripture. I want to share my faith. I want to be like Jesus. I sincerely desire that. But for some reason, I can't always do it. Sometimes I don't feel like it. I make excuses. I'm lazy. I'm apathetic. I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like praying. The very thing I want to do and know I should do, I don't. Then on the flip side... There's things I know I should not do. I know what's wrong. I know that's sin. I don't want to do it. I don't want to get sin against God. I want to honor him and please him. But then at the weakest moment, I give in and do the very thing I didn't want to do. It's frustrating. It's defeating. It's confusing. Have you experienced this? It's just me. 
I believe this is what Paul's describing. He's given us a behind-the-scenes, real-life, unfiltered description of what it's like to battle with sin. And Paul shares this with us because it's the perfect example of why we cannot obey our way out of sin. Sin is just too powerful and too pervasive. We know what's right. We even have the desire for it, but we don't have the ability to do it on our own. So holiness feels hard. And sin feels easy. Over the last several months, my wife and I have really tried to, to eat healthier and to do this, this crazy thing called uh, exercise. And my wife, she's done fantastic. She's lost weight. She's gained muscle. She's always making smoothies and salads and something called squash brownies, which is not of the Lord. Uh, <laughs> those are two words that should never go in the same sentence. She also works out really hard. She's dedicated to it. And then there's me. Look, I'm on my own path to wellness, okay? And that path usually leads to crumble cookies. But you guys know, look, cookies are my weakness. And they went, I don't know if you've been, but they went and built a crumble cookie in Olathe. That's not my fault. Like, I didn't ask for that. They did that to me. And here's the core issue. I mean, here's my struggle. I know eating right is good, or eating and exercising is good for you. I want to be healthy. I want to live a long life so I can care for my family and my grandkids. And I believe that taking care of your body is a spiritual issue. We need to be good stewards of the body that God's given us. I've even read books on the value of exercise. I've watched videos. I've read medical studies where they say, oh, fruits and veggies will lead to a long, happy life. But boy... Eating junk food is so much easier. There's even an app for crumble cookies on my phone. I don't know how it got there. It's just one day. They don't have apps for salads. Let me tell you that. I just pull up my phone, and I push a few buttons, and I can have cookies anytime. It's, it's the work of the devil, I'm telling you. <laughs> But junk food tastes better in the moment, doesn't it? When I get to heaven, one of the questions I'm going to ask God is, why didn't you make celery taste like Oreos? <laughs> like life would have been way easier for me. And then there's just laying in bed and sitting in my recliner. It feels so much easier than getting up and working out and sweating. Why is that? <laughs> why is doing the wrong thing just easier for us? Why are we prone to laziness and, and self-destruction? Why does celery taste so bad? <laughs> well, Paul tells us right here, kind of, it's because we're fallen. Something is wrong with us. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 3. We're broken by sin. This is not the way it should be. And it pervades every part of us. Paul says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. That's what we mean by total depravity. Every part of us has been affected by sin. We're broken. So does that mean it's not our fault? It's not me. I can't help it. It's sin's fault. Even Paul seems to say that at the end of verse 20. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Let me clear it up. That, that's not what he's saying. <laughs> the fact that we are sinners does not give us an excuse to sin. The fact that Paul struggled with sin doesn't mean it's okay for us. Yes, we have a sinful flesh, but sin is always our responsibility. Do you see? He says, it dwells within me. It's in me. It's not something happening to me. No, it's me. It's us. But Paul, 
does not end this passage here, thankfully. He doesn't leave us in this defeated, beat-down state eating our cookies. (laughs) But he wants us to see that this is not the last word for the believer. Look at what is. Verses 21 to 25 of Romans 7. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul breaks down the problem one more time in case you missed it. He delights in the law of God. He wants to do what is right, but there's this other law in him. It's waging war. It's making us captive. And that's the picture of our struggle. It's like this war taking place inside of us. There's this this battle raging for our souls. We, We know what's right, but our flesh pushes back and takes us captive, and we feel like prisoners. We're stuck in this cycle of sin. You can just sense Paul's defeat and frustration as he cries out. He says, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? That word wretched means miserable. I'm miserable. I'm broken. There's nothing good in me. So here comes the key question. Who will deliver me? He doesn't say, what can I do? How can I fix myself? What are the seven steps I need to take to a better life? How can I become a better version of me? No, he's looking outside himself, saying, who will deliver me? Who can pull me out of this mud hole? I've tried to obey the law, and I couldn't do it. It just made things worse. I want to follow Jesus and live for him, but I feel stuck, stuck in my same old ways in this endless cycle. Who will deliver me? That's the question, and praise the Lord, we have an answer. Man, I'm so glad we have an answer. Because there are so many people around us looking for this answer. People all around us asking this question, who will deliver me? I'm broken, I'm I'm hopeless, I'm miserable, who will deliver me? Nothing seems to go right in my life, I don't know what my purpose is, who will deliver me? I tried this, it didn't work, I tried that, it didn't help, I can't fix my life, I'm broken, who will deliver me? Friends, the answer is Jesus. Please notice, it's not you. It's not in you. world says, look within. Find your true self, your best self. You are the answer. You are enough. You have everything you need inside yourself. Listen, those are lies straight from the pit of hell. Because the only answer is Jesus. He's the only one who can deliver us from our sin. He's the only one who can save us and give us real life and purpose. Jesus is exactly what we need. And sometimes God lets us get to a miserable place in order to see that. Sometimes we have to get to the bottom of the well before we're willing to look up for help. Sometimes we have to get to the end of ourselves before we realize that ourselves is the problem. We're the problem. We need someone else to give us the solution. That's why sometimes I pray for people who are lost. I I pray that God will mess up their life. So that by any means possible that they might see Jesus is the answer. So, how does Jesus fix our situation? How does he deal with our sin problem? What's it got to do with me? Well, I'm so glad you asked because that's actually how I'm going to finish the sermon. 
Jesus did three things that completely and totally save us from our sin and pull us out of the mud hole. He lived, he died, and he rose again. First, he lived, and he lived a perfect life. Remember, that part's important. The law is good and holy, and we're not, so we don't measure up to the standard. We cannot dunk the ball no matter how hard we try. Only someone perfect and holy themselves could obey the law, and that's exactly who Jesus was. He was God in human flesh. He took on sinful humanity, and yet he never sinned. He obeyed every single rule and law, and he did it in our place. We cannot obey our way out of sin, but we don't have to because Jesus obeyed our way out of sin. He lived. Second, he died. On the cross, even though Jesus was perfect, he died and took our place. He took the punishment for our sin. See, there's a punishment for disobeying the law because God is holy. He has to deal with sin and evil. And instead of putting that punishment on us like we deserve, he put it on Jesus instead. Jesus paid the debt we owe. Therefore, sin is no longer our collector, hounding us into paying it back, but we're free because Jesus died. And third, Jesus rose. He rose from the grave, defeating sin and death once and for all, and he gave us the same life he had, eternal life, that we might live forever with him. And it's through this resurrection power that we're finally able to find victory over sin. This is good news. This is why we sing happy day. (laughs) This is good good news for those who are lost and dead in their sins because as we've seen, no one can obey their way out of sin. No one can fix their own problem and save themselves. But when they trust in Jesus, he saves them from their sin and gives them freedom to live for him. If that's you today, there's nothing more to be done but just to trust in Christ and be free. This is also good news for those of us like me who've already trusted in Jesus. Because like Paul, we still struggle. We still have this battle going on. We still mess up. But listen, we can live a life of victory over sin. We're going to talk all about this next week because let me tell you, Romans 8 is coming. You're not going to want to miss Romans 8 the next two weeks. It's, It's amazing. But Paul's closing exclamation tells us here that through Jesus, we don't have to mope and wallow in our defeat. We don't have to hide in shame. Sin no longer has power of us over us. Sin is no longer our master. And here's the incredible twist of all of it. Now we're actually able to obey through and with the help of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? The thing that we tried so hard to do and to fix ourselves is made possible only when we give up and turn to Jesus for help. Obedience comes from knowing and trusting in Jesus. So we don't get saved and then go back and try to do things on our own. Look, we couldn't obey our way out of sin the first time around, and we still can't do it today. But with the power of Jesus, his life lived through us, we can honor the Lord. We can choose to defeat sin and break these chains that bind us and find victory. We can actually live the life God has called us to live and be the people he's called us to be. We can do it. Because of Jesus. And we can say with Paul, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's go to him now in prayer.